introduce our second speaker, who is a professor here at Wycliffe College, as uh, many of you who are from Wycliffe or TST here know, Joseph Mangina. Um, he's been, uh, he works uh, in lots of areas and uh, richly and creatively, uh, but certainly the question of ecclesiology is one of those uh, where he has done a lot of work and contributed to a lot of work, uh, not least through his editorship and steering of the journal Pro Ecclesia, uh, which is one of the finest theological journals, if you're not aware of it, uh, that's in print, um, bringing together a wide range of Catholic and Protestant uh, uh, voices and minds and hearts. Um, he has been working, as perhaps he'll tell us, on um, a, a project dealing with um, uh, the Gospel of John and ecclesiology. And so he's been at work on this one uh, for the last year or so, and so it's in his mind and so on. That's one reason we asked if he might share something of what he's been doing in his research with us today as we're trying to talk about the relationship of Scripture to our thinking of the church. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Joe Mangina, and I uh, hope you'll give him a good hand and your attention. Thank you, Ephraim. <clears throat> I came home from work yesterday and walked into the kitchen, and my daughter was, my 15-year-old daughter, Frances, was sitting at the kitchen table, laptop open in front of her, and she was looking at something on the screen. And I said, Frances, what are you working on? And she said, I'm trying to find out about the unities. I said, come again. Um, and she said, well, we're doing a unit on Greek tragedy in our literature class. And so I'm supposed to find out something about the unities of, the, of, of Greek tragedy according to Aristotle's poetics. And I thought, boy, English classes have really kind of become a bit more challenging uh, than when I, you know, we read Pride and Prejudice and all that. But, um, um, so all that by way of saying that um, the unities here may be lacking. Uh, uh, Philip is speaking from his recently published book, which I very much look forward to reading after the, the taste of it uh, that you've given us in the last, uh, in the previous session, Philip. Um, this is very much a work in progress, and um, perhaps if there are unities among the, uh, the topics that I'm going to present for you this morning, maybe you can help me to discover them better. Uh, and that really, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get feedback um, on what I present. Um, I'm calling this paper Full of Trinity, Discovering the Church Through the Gospel of John. In 2006, the Anglican Orthodox International Dialogue published the so-called Cyprus Statement, titled The Church of the Triune God, spelling out convergences and disagreements between the two traditions in the realm of ecclesiology. The document opens by quoting the first letter of John, chapter one, verses two and three. This life was revealed, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the authors of the document go on to comment. I quote, what is the life revealed to us? St. John makes it clear that the fellowship or communion, koinonia, of life in the church 
reflects the communion that is the divine life itself, the life of the Trinity. This is not the revelation of a reality remote from us, for in the communion of the church, we share in the divine life. The communion manifested in the life of the church has the Trinitarian fellowship as its basis, model, and ultimate goal. Conversely, the communion of the persons of the Holy Trinity creates structures and expounds the mystery of the communion experienced in the church. It is within and by the church that we come to know the Trinity, and by the Trinity we come to understand the church because, quote, the church is full of Trinity. Origin fragment on Psalm 23. Now, this is one of the best brief distillations of communion ecclesiology that I know of. Communion, koinonia, is the common term uniting divine and human reality, indeed, specifically ecclesial reality. The communion manifested in the life of the church as a Trinitarian fellowship as its basis, model, and ultimate goal. It is, moreover, remarkable how quickly the document moves from the Trinity to claims concerning human participation in God. Thus, already in the second sentence, we find the bald statement, in the communion of the church, we share in the divine life. These are startling claims, to say the least. Grounding the church's existence in the divine Trinitarian life is one way of ensuring a genuine genuinely theological ecclesiology. And I'm sure that's the intention of the framers of the statement. They want to connect, the, they don't want the church to be a free-floating human sociological uh, quantity. They want to connect the church as closely as possible to its divine origin and basis. And to that extent, I think we can, we can honor and laud the, 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 the intentions of the, of, the, of the authors. My question is, is this the only way of grounding an ecclesiology theologically? Is it even the best way? I'm not sure. When I read the documents of communion ecclesiology, it's usually not that I disagree with the things that are said about either God or the church. It's that I find it all terribly abstract. The church, as described in these documents, seems exalted, mysterious, attractive even, but also maddeningly elusive. I do not doubt that Origen is right in saying that the church is full of trinity. Indeed, the fact that Origen said it makes me inclined to think it might even be true. But how to get at that truth? You know, I was, I mean, just before uh, our meeting this morning, I was looking again at the Cyprus document, and there's a couple of other, I mean, if you read on in the document, they, they qualify the rather grand claims about Trinitarianism, Trinitarian ecclesiology that are stated in the beginning. So, for example, in, in section 13, they say, the Christian understanding of life in the church requires not only a reflection on the pattern of divine agency in creation and the history of salvation, but also a grounding in the theology of the divine life as it eternally is, the imminent trinity. So there's a restatement of their sort of Trinitarian basis. Um, then they go on to say, unless we try to grasp what kind of God it is who acts in this way towards us, our theology of the church will be impoverished. Now, 
I think that's a very helpful qualification, right? Unless we try to grasp what kind of God it is who acts in this way towards us, our theology of the church will be impoverished. To that, I can only say yes and amen. Um, my question is whether they don't kind of systematically undermine their own best insights um, by pursuing ecclesiology at this high level of abstraction, um, as if to say that figuring out the relations of origin and hypostasis and ousia and perichoresis, as if that's going to be your primary set of clues for thinking about ecclesial reality, the life of the church. And in fact, it's very interesting, um, as you read the document, I, I do sometimes wonder whether this is Anglican Orthodox dialogue or Anglican John Ziziulus dialogue. I mean, in, in it's remarkable the extent to which Ziziulus's particular theology of personhood has kind of become the, a, a, a lingua franca in at least parts of the ecumenical world. It's become sort of the, the standard coinage that people employ in these discussions. And, and again, I'm not meaning to, this is not a refutation or even critique of communion ecclesiology. It's a questioning whether um, that particular idiom has simply uh, sort of taken over and swamped other vocabularies and other ways of getting at the church in a more nitty gritty uh, on the ground level. Again, Origen said the church is full of trinity, but how to get at that truth? Perhaps not by mounting a frontal assault using big terms like koinonia and perichoresis, but by indirection, attending once more to the primary data of scriptural revelation. Wittgenstein once described certain problems in philosophy like this, quote, we have got onto slippery ice where there is no friction, and so, in a certain sense, the conditions are ideal. But also, just because of that, we are unable to walk. We want to walk, so we need friction. Back to the rough ground. It's a famous passage from the Philosophical Investigations. So what I propose is that what we need in ecclesiology is a theological equivalent of going back to the rough ground, to a place where our language about the church once again encounters resistance, a place where it connects up with the actual church. Well, there's a question-begging assertion for you, for is not ecclesiological inquiry a kind of quest for the actual church? We need the church in order to get started, but we cannot get started, because the church, the real and true church, always seems just beyond our grasp. It's like what Philip said about uh, Niels Dahl and the group working on Ephesians. We're, we're, I'd love to see this beautiful church. Right? Well, actually, it's not so bad as all that. I am happy to begin with the church as I know it. Quite specifically, the church of St. Martin in the fields. The Toronto one rather than the London one. A particular congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada. This proposal would likely make my friend John Webster, and also predecessor here at Wycliffe, John Webster, nervous. Webster has written that theologians must not, under any circumstances, treat ecclesiology as so-called first theology. That is, one must not use the lived experience of Christian community as the chief clue to understanding divine things. I mean, Webster's objection, in effect, is 
from a, from a good Bardian perspective, uh, in, in a certain way, starting with the church is no better than starting with the, the, the subject of religious experience. You're still starting with human stuff and, and using that to sort of shape what you say about Christ, the Trinity, and so on. Yet, in fact, I agree with Webster in a certain way. I do not propose to begin with church practices or with some sociological or ethnographic study of local congregations. While by no means denying the usefulness of such studies, they are not my primary focus of interest as a theologian. Rather, my way of rendering ecclesiology both more theological and more concrete is by means of a retrieval of Holy Scripture. Scripture is the rough ground where we can once more gain traction for our ecclesiological language. Scripture is where we will discover the church that is full of Trinity, and just so rediscover the church that both moves and maddens us in our daily experience. All this is a very long introduction to my current work in progress titled The True Vine, The Mystery of the Church in the Fourth Gospel. Um, a word about the title. Um, I, I mean, this, this notion of doing an ecclesiology in, with a primary engagement conversation with John has been in my mind for a long time, and uh, so I needed a title for it. I thought, well, I'll call it the true vine. It's that glorious image from John 15. And, um, and so I developed a book proposal, and I have a contract with Baker to write the book. Um, fine. Well, I'm sitting in church one morning in the pew that I always inhabit, because I sit up front, I'm in the choir, and uh, I have to be careful. My rector is here, Philip Hobson. Um, but in, a, in an odd moment, not during one of your sermons, Philip, um, I just sort of <laughs> idly looked up towards the, st we have a wonderful set of stained glass windows in the nave that, uh, that have all of the Johannine I am sayings. And I look up and I see, I am the true vine, an angel holding a scroll. I've been looking at, at that for the last 10 years and, and not really registering that I'd seen it. So. Talk about lived ecclesiology on the ground, there you have it, liturgical theology maybe even. So the true vine, the mystery of the church in the fourth gospel. What kind of work will this be? Well, ask me in a year or so when I've written more of it. It will certainly not be a commentary on John, a daunting task that exceeds my modest talents. Nor will it be a study of various images of the church in John whether the bride, the sheepfold, the community of friends, or even the vine. Although I'm sure each of those will, will come up as I uh, work with the text. Rather, what I envision is something like a series of dogmatic engagements with particular themes in ecclesiology, employing the fourth gospel as the prime site to be excavated. I am thinking of such classic ecclesiological themes as scripture and tradition, preaching, the sacraments, church order, mission, and above all, unity and disunity. The ecumenical movement was utterly right to find in John 17 the great charter of unity among Christians. Jesus prays for his followers, quote, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This certainly sounds like communion ecclesiology, Yet these words of Jesus may also not be separated from their larger context within Jesus' prayer to the Father or within the gospel as a whole. 
Jesus speaks these words on the eve of his death. Thus, Ernst Kesemann spoke of John 17 as the testament of Jesus. The context is that of Jesus' glorification, his return to the Father via his death, an event that entails the preservation of his followers from the evil one and their sanctification in the truth. There is a dramatic aspect to John's vision of the church that cannot well be captured by a single concept such as koinonia. The Johannine church is a church in mission. It is the seed that falls into the ground and dies, and dying bears much fruit. But what does it mean to speak of the Johannine church? I certainly do not intend this phrase in any archaeological sense. Quote, the Johannine community, that construct so much beloved of New Testament scholars. No doubt it is necessary and useful to ask the historical question concerning John's church, whoever John was, and wherever his community may have been located. New Testament scholars have all sorts of ideas about this. I am happy to learn from them, really, even though I've written a Brazos commentary on the Bible. When I read works like J. Louis Martin's History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel, or Richard Balcom's The Testimony of the Beloved Disciple, I feel that I am reading a detective novel with all the thrill of the chase that entails. The difference, of course, is that with a detective novel, you eventually find out who done it, whereas biblical scholarship offers no such closure. I say this you know, with the spirit of fun. I actually am I'm, I'm quite a junkie for historical critical commentaries. But when I think of the church in relation to the fourth gospel, I am thinking less of an originating community and more of our own communities as arrested and captivated by John's witness, drawn into the light whose coming into the world he so vividly describes. In his great commentary on the fourth gospel, St. Thomas Aquinas writes that the evangelist's purpose in composing his book was, quote, so that the faithful might become the temple of God. So the church is the telos, the goal of the book. Note that this is quite different from saying that the church is the gospel's subject matter. Catholic theologian Frederick Bauerschmidt thus argues that for Aquinas, quote, the gospel is not really about the church at all. Rather, the matter or theme of the book is the humanity and divinity of Christ. That's Aquinas on the Johannine Prologue. This is John's theme. Jesus Christ, divine and human, the eternal word of God made flesh and glorified. That is what the fourth gospel is about. Yet, it is precisely through the proclamation of this reality that the church is built up in truth and holiness. What Christ is by nature, the Lord's temple or dwelling place, the faithful are called upon to become as a sanctified people. So what Christ is, the church becomes precisely by, by being conformed to the form of Christ. We heard that already in Philip's uh, lecture in relation to Ephesians. The fourth gospel famously opens with a prologue, a hymn to or meditation on the word, the Logos. In his deliciously titled book, the Jesus the Word According to John the Sectarian, a paleo-fundamentalist manifesto for evangelicals and especially their elites 
in contemporary North America. Isn't that a great title? Jesus the Word according to John the Sectarian, a paleo-fundamentalist manifesto for evangelicals and especially their elites in contemporary North America. Robert Gundry has shown that the theme of the Word or Logos is by no means abandoned in the 20 chapters that followed. There's a tradition of scholarship going all the way back to Harnock saying, you have the prologue, but the prologue is tacked on at a, in, during a later editorial recension. It actually doesn't do any work in the, in, in the te text of the gospel. And Gundry just shows how wrongheaded that is. There's a, there's a profound unity between the prologue and what follows. Gundry effectively demonstrates the extent to which John's Jesus enacts his mission by his speech. Verbs such as legain, lalein, didaskein, and so on are pervasive in this text. In conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus can describe himself quite simply as the one who speaks to you. He gives his disciples a new commandment. He is declared by Peter to have the words of eternal life, and so on and so on. Examples could be multiplied. In a long chapter in his book, Gundry attests John's lococentrism in every possible way. Now, Gundry also has an ecclesiological agenda, and if we had more time today, we could explore it, namely to show that John's high Christology and his soteriological exclusivism leads inexorably to a sectarian understanding of the church, which in Gundry's estimation is a good thing, a necessary antidote to an evangelical movement gone all flabby and pluralistic as it has risen in social status. Gundry is the only writer I know of who criticizes George Lindbeck and Stanley Hauerwas as being insufficiently sectarian. <laughs> High Christology entails tightly drawn social boundaries. It is an intriguing argument, though one that exceeds the scope of my comments today. I mean, the whole question of John and sectarianism, I'm, I, I'm, I think it's obviously the case that in this book, I'm going to have to engage this at some point because it, it works at both ends, right? Because from the work of Lou Martin and Wayne Meeks and any number of other, I mean, this kind of gained traction in mid, later 20th century scholarship, the sense that the originating situation of the fourth gospel is a sectarian, is a sectarian one that John is forged in, amid the separation of the church from the synagogue, uh, possible that the Johannine community had actually been excluded or banned from the synagogue and therefore uh, defined itself over against the Jewish other, the synagogue. Um, and you, know, you can make of that what you will as a historical thesis. Uh, however that may be, a lot of people fear that the text as we have it um, actually uh, encourages sectarianism and a kind of narrowness of outlook among Christians today. And so this is one of the things, both historically and, and sort of theologically, ethically, that one, that one needs to struggle with. But that's not where I'm going to go with this. My point in citing Gundry is more by way of highlighting his emphasis on the word. His account might lead us to expect that an ecclesiology shaped by the fourth gospel would construe the church in good Protestant fashion as creatura verbi, a creature or creation of the word. The church, in Johannine perspective, would be the community that hears the voice of the Good Shepherd and follows him. It would be a church summoned into existence by preaching. 
such a church would be sustained by the reading and interpretation of Holy Scripture and the formulation of doctrine as a way of setting a kind of fence around Scripture. Now, I would not be at this conference today, or for that matter, teaching at Wycliffe College, if I did not think Holy Scripture and preaching stand at the very center of the church's life. The Reformation ecclesiology of creatura verbi is correct, up to a point. Only we must not construe the word, word, too narrowly. The word, after all, did not become text and dwell among us. The word became flesh. One of the most striking things about the fourth gospel is the way in which the word, that is Jesus, concretely inhabits the landscape of first century Palestine. Thus, scholars often note John's detailed knowledge of Palestinian topography. This most spiritual of gospels is also, in some ways, the most earthy. In his Theodrama, Hans Urs von Balthasar speaks of the word that journeys with us alluding to the tables of the law that accompanied Israel on her wilderness wanderings. Yet the saying applies beautifully as well to the Jesus of the fourth gospel. And, and of course, I mean, Balthazar has both Old Testament examples and, and, and Christ himself in mind. Jesus does not give life to the world by asserting propositional or categorical truth, but simply by embodying the Lord's presence among his creatures. He walks about and in this way sanctifies time and space. He traverses the rough ground of Galilee and Judea. From chapter 1, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, peripatunti, and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This peripatetic Christology cannot but have an impact on our conception of the church. And, uh, you know, good poets borrow, great poets steal, I, I'm, I'm borrowing a page here from my colleague Ephraim Radner because in A Brutal Unity, uh, Ephraim develops this theme of the sort of the, the, the peregrinating of Christ, the Christ who walks on this earth with us in, in a quite uh, beautiful way. And I, uh, so read that in, in Ephraim's book, but then also read this wonderful essay that the Jewish theologian Peter Oakes wrote in response to, to Ephraim's book. Um, I think it's quite interesting that it was precisely a Jewish reader who picked up on that theme in your book, Ephraim, and, and developed it. I don't, I don't think that, that that's an accident. Uh, this peripatetic Christology cannot but have an impact on our conception of the church. A word I am tempted to reach for in this context is sacramental. My only hesitation in using it is that it has become a cliche and a flabby and lazy one at that. Be on your guard against Anglicans who speak in glowing terms about abstractions like the sacramental universe or the sacramental principle. These are the same Anglicans who speak of being incarnational, another unfortunate habit of speech. Sacramentalism suggests generic divine presence, managing somehow to be both idolatrous and boring at the same time. In the face of such pan-sacramentalism, I am more than happy to fall back on the radical Protestant ecclesiology of the Word of God. Uh, but I don't think those are our only two alternatives. Having said that, I am on the side of those who read John as a sacramental gospel. Indeed, I find it astonishing that anyone should claim otherwise. 
just as I am on the side of those who see sacraments as being at the center of the church's life. We simply need to keep in mind that the notion of sacrament is a piece of second-order theological language. It is not an end in itself, but serves to direct our attention to the gritty particularities of God's way of being among us, whether in the time of the words tabernacling or in the historic life of the church. So, sacramental ecclesiology, absolutely, but not in that kind of abstract way. Of, I mean, if sacraments are, are simply everywhere, um, sort of free-floating divine presence, then really they're nowhere, and we lose our connectedness with the biblical story and the, the groundedness of Christ in, in this earth. The problem with free-floating sacramentalism, ironically, is that it ends up leading to a kind of spiritualizing of ecclesiology. We want a grounded sacramentology. Now, so far, I'm well aware that I've been talking my way around the fourth gospel rather than out of it. I feel that at this point, I owe you some actual exegesis. Let me try to illustrate some of the things I've been saying then by attending to a particular passage in John, indeed one of the most famous passages, indeed beloved passages of all. I am referring to the miracle at Cana in Galilee. The story is only 11 verses long, 11 verses. Well, maybe 12 if you count the, the, the transitional verse. Yet how much John is able to show us in that brief space, both about the identity of, of Jesus and about the character of the Christian life. Obviously, I'll only be able to skim the surface of this rich narrative. So let me just read it for you, and I quote from the English Standard Version. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's an unfortunate translation at that point because by giving you a, an exact quantity, they miss the fact that the number in the text is not 20 or 30, it's two or three. Right? That would just totally mess up uh, Augustine's reading of the passage, for example. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then there's that transitional verse that I mentioned. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there not a few days. The best and most economical way into this story, perhaps, is to note the frame formed by the opening and closing verses. 
So chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And then the closing bit of the frame, verses 11 and 12, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then there's the transitional bit about moving on to Capernaum. Note that John is very insistent on place. Not Jerusalem or Samaria, but Galilee. And not just anywhere in Galilee, but a village called Cana. Locality matters. He is also insistent on time, the third day. The early portions of John's narrative are broken down by days, although this third day interrupts the sequence. The third day, the reader wants to know after what. John does not tell us. But what we do know is that we are in the literal early days of Jesus' time with his disciples, a time so fresh in memory that particular days stand out. In his lecture on Wednesday, Philip talked about, the, or, and this morning, Philip talked about the grace of attention or attentiveness as elaborated by thinkers like Simon Weil. And I think the evangelist would like us to cultivate that virtue, right? This is, a, this is a gospel that, I mean, just think of the narrative pace of John as compared to Mark, right? With Mark, it's always barreling ahead. Uthus, 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 immediately, immediately, and then they move here and there. John slows things down. If you look at the larger uh, Johannine narrative, there are far fewer episodes, but the, the episodes that are there are elaborated in great detail. And if you want a commentary that I think does a wonderful job of really slowing things down so that one can adopt a kind of almost contemplative approach to the text, I would recommend Francis Maloney's three-volume commentary on the fourth gospel. Uh, Maloney is an Australian Catholic biblical scholar, and um, he does a kind of reader response criticism, but with a nice you know, mixing in of, of historical and theological insights. I, I wish he'd do a little more of the theology. But, but he's great in slowing down the text and allowing you to appreciate the sort of cumulative impact of the text on the reader as you move through John's gospel. Just, it's just lovely uh, performance. Now, the occasion at Cana, of course, is a wedding. And with a single stroke, with that single stroke, John instantly sets us in the context of both creation and the Old Testament. Cana, we might say, is the world. The world in the positive Johannine sense. The world that God so loved that he sent his only son. But Cana is also Israel. This is a Jewish wedding with Jewish participants in the land of Galilee. John places us deep in history, in the realm of marrying and being given in marriage, generation and blessing, the cosmos as created by the Lord and declared to be very good. Right? It's not impossible to connect the enumeration of days in the early uh, first couple of chapters of John with the days of creation in Genesis. I wouldn't want to do that in any kind of mechanical way, but I think there's certainly a suggestion there. Now, in the framing verses that I've singled out, we are given the main characters of the narrative, the mother of Jesus, Jesus himself, and the disciples. These are the church, at least for the purposes of this story. The other characters, the servants, the master of the feast, the bridegroom, the bride, poor bride, never appears, 
They serve a merely instrumental role. If we ask ourselves the basic literary critical question, who changes in the course of the narrative? Who learns something? The answer is clearly the disciples and possibly Jesus' mother. Something happens to these characters as a result of their encounter with Jesus, just as something happens to us, the church, whenever we encounter things. If the first chapter of John is devoted to the theme, the gathering of the church, this second chapter might be called the event of the church, the church as it were in actu, the church happens. But it is the concluding verse of the narrative that provides the key to the whole. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. These words are programmatic for the entire gospel. While scholars typically divide the fourth gospel into a book of signs and a book of glory, a division that makes a certain amount of sense, the reality is that the entire gospel is thick with signs. The reality to which the signs point is the identity of Jesus, his status as word and son of God, sharing in the eternal glory, the doxa of the Father. Since John's implied reader knows her Old Testament, she will understand that to talk of the glory of Jesus is code language for his divinity. Um, and I would simply note here that, of course, too many real readers of the gospel in our churches today wouldn't know what the implied reader knows, namely that this is all a kind of a recapitulation of Old Testament themes. And so that part of our catechetical task is to turn these real readers, well, first of all, it's to turn the people in our congregations into real readers of the text, and then those, turn those real readers into implied readers who understand the Old Testament background. As a reader of the Old Testament, she would also hear in the time indicator the third day an echo of the Lord's self-manifestation on Sinai in Exodus 19, right? I mean, I think readers of all sorts, if you, on a hasty first reading of the text, you might not catch, catch that. Going back, you say, what does the third day mean? Oh, well, it was on the third day that Israel was told to wait upon the Lord, and then he would descend in a cloud on Mount Sinai, and then there would be the dwelling there, and eventually the giving of the law, and so on. And of course, for the Christian reader, the third day, what does that, have we heard that somewhere before, the, on the third day, right? Now, you will recall that according to Aquinas, the theme of the gospel is the divinity and humanity of Christ. The very formal analysis I've offered so far really only touches on his divinity. And just to that extent, I admit that I have been a docetist. But of course, John does not afford us that luxury. Indeed, there's a rich tradition of scholarship suggesting that the whole point of John's economy of signs is to defeat the docetic temptation. The glory of Jesus, which is the glory of the Lord, is made manifest through the ordinary stuff of created existence. Here is another reason for seeing the fourth gospel as being through and through sacramental. This is true, but if we stop at this point, we will be no more than abstract incarnationalists. The actual story John tells is far more interesting than that. In the story that unfolds within the frame, it is the mother of Jesus who takes the lead. The mother-son relationship is, in fact, the key to the narrative. And that, unless you think I've gone all Catholic on you, the point is affirmed by none other than the great Bishop Westcott, an evangelical Anglican without guile. 
It is significant in this regard that the mother is mentioned first among those invited to the wedding. Jesus' mother, and notice that I do not call her Mary, for we are in the Johannine world, not the Lucan or Matthean world. The mother of Jesus draws her son's attention to the fact that the wine has run out. The narrator has no interest at all in explaining this occurrence. He simply describes, she simply describes, they have no wine. The mother does not harangue her son or ask him to do anything. She merely states a fact. It is a delicately balanced moment. The mother both seems to expect something of Jesus and yet leaves it to him to respond in whatever form he deems appropriate. Please note that we don't need to get nervous about this maternal priority within the narrative, for it inheres in the situation itself. As truly human, Jesus cannot give without also receiving, that is, being the recipients of other, others' actions and words upon him. Just as eternally he receives his sonship from the Father, so in time he is the recipient of others' actions and expectations, if this were not the case, there would be no gospel story. Those of you who know your Richard Hooker, where's Katie? Um, uh, there, there's a wonderful passage in Book 5 of the Laws where Hooker's laying out Christology, and he speaks of Christ being in three degrees a receiver. Right? He's a receiver in the sense that he receives his identity as the son from the father. He's a receiver, humanly speaking, by virtue of the, uh, the, you know, the, the person of the word's union with his huma human nature, and he's a receiver of particular graces and virtues, unction of the spirit that allows him to carry out, carry out his ministry. So it's interesting how Hooker speaks of Christology in this sort of receiving or recipient way. Now, Jesus' response to his mother is famously gruff. Woman, what does this have to do with me? A saying notoriously difficult to translate. Perhaps... Woman, what business is this of mine? Or, lady, what's your problem? <laughs> Whatever the degree of rudeness in the Greek or Aramaic expression, the force of Jesus' remark is clearly to set some distance between his mother's agenda and his own. In other words, if you, even if you construe the Greek expression as not being rude, it clearly is separating uh, agendas or expectations. She sees a lack of wine in the present moment. He looks forward to the completion of his mission in his glorification and return to the Father. My hour has not yet come. In this little exchange, we see the whole dynamic of John's gospel at work, the disconnect between earthly perception and divine reality, the infinite qualitative distance that yawns between heaven and earth. At this moment, Jesus' mother anticipates every human character in the fourth gospel who doesn't get it from Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman to the crowds who expect earthly bread to feed their bellies in chapter 6, and on, on that basis would seek to make Jesus king. What none of these characters grasp is the awesome event of the hour, which in John, of course, means the hour of cross and resurrection, the sign of signs, the ultimate reality in light of which everything finite pales in significance. The woman, the mother, doesn't get it, and yet she does get it. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Ti an lege humin poiesate. Lege, related to logos, the verbal form of Jesus' own identity as the word itself. So we're back with our 
uh, ecclesiology of the word, aren't we? Do whatever the word tells you. We do not need to credit Jesus' mother with understanding, but we do need to credit her with faith. She who bore the eternal word in her womb now waits to hear what he will say in time. No, she doesn't even wait to hear. She tells others to attend to and obey what the word says. For whatever he says, she knows that what it brings about will be very good. The mother of Jesus, all right, let's be canonical for just a moment and call her Mary. She is in this sense a profoundly ecclesial figure. She anticipates the disciples' faith. She is Israel, or the church, or both, insofar as these communities wait upon the word of the Lord. The church is a creation of the word, yes, but the way the word creates the church is not through some sheerly vertical context-independent bolt from the blue. I mean, that would be some readings of Bart on the church as event, but I don't think it's a proper reading of Bart, right? I mean, what would that mean? I mean to, for Bart to speak of the church as event, the whole substantive reality of the Trinity and the Incarnation and the cross is implied there. I mean, that's as much of a context as you could ask for. The church is a timeful reality, and just so is summoned into being through the contingent events of time. In this, as in many other respects, the church resembles Israel, which at a sheerly narrative level often seems to take the leading role in relation to the Lord, so that the Lord is forced to play catch-up. This is what it means when Bart, for instance, pairs the wisdom of God with the patience of God in his account of the divine perfections. For God manifests his wisdom nowhere more powerfully than when he is patient with us. And boy, do we ever force him to be patient. The word of God is sovereign in both the church and the world, but the form that sovereignty takes is a walking with the church through the midst of creation in time. To cite Balthazar once more, the word journeys with us. Now, the irony of the story, of course, is that the implied request of Jesus' mother is realized, although in a way she could not have imagined. Jesus turns the water into wine. He does so both quantitatively and qualitatively. Six enormous stone water jars and wine that is very good. True, the hour has not yet come. Jesus cannot act in any way that would distract him from his single-minded obedience to his mission. In a very real sense, he is his mission. Yet, as the mission takes him through creation and history, so creation and history are replete with signs of his glory, whether wine that suddenly appears at a village wedding or the bread and wine of the Eucharist. We do not have the time today to discuss the significance of the six stone water jars in their context, contents. Are they creation as such? Are they the old covenant in its imperfection denoted by the number six? a common patristic reading. Does the wine suggest Eucharistic overtones? Perhaps. I don't think we necessarily need to choose among these alternatives. The larger point is that that which is ultimate, Jesus' glorification in the event of the hour, enters into and transforms that which is penultimate. While creation, time, history, and the church last, there will always be good wine and cause for celebration. The evangelist calls the miracle at Cana the first of Jesus' signs. 
Surely he does not mean that simply in a chronological sense. Indeed, after the second sign, the healing of the nobleman's son, also said in Cana, John stops counting signs. I mean, scholars will say, were there six, are there seven, are there eight? I think for that, that misses the point of what John's trying to do. John leaves it to his readers to note signs when they occur. This sign is typical, however, in the sense of its transparency and luminous character. Jesus manifests his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What could be more simple? By the time we reach the end of the book of signs, the raising of Lazarus, everything will be far messier and more complicated. I am tempted to call the progression from Cana to Bethany a pilgrimage from the pastoral to the grotesque. That is too neat, no doubt, yet it is inevitably true that if the word journeys with us, he will have to put up with the world's and our opposition. If we had only the wedding at Cana to go on, we would have little sense of the strongly conflictual element in the fourth gospel. The son's exaltation on the cross as God's judgment of the world, this time cosmos in the negative sense. Instead, it is sheer divine presence that we encounter here, presence in and through the humanity of Jesus. So we're back to Aquinas' theme of it. John is about the divinity and the humanity of Christ. It is, it's Chalcedonian, we might say. This story is about life, not death, although it looks forward to the hour when Jesus' glory will be perfected and manifest in his death. Which makes it all the more striking that Fyodor Dostoevsky should have titled one of the crucial episodes in the Brothers Karamazov, Cana of Galilee. Readers of that great novel will know that. It is the part of the narrative where Dostoevsky's hero, Alyosha, is grieving the death of his beloved mentor, the elder Zosima, a monk in the monastery where Alyosha himself lives as a novice. As if that loss were not bad enough, in the course of the all-night funeral vigil, it turns out that Zosima's body has not, as his followers anticipated, been preserved from corruption as a sign of his surpassing holiness. On the contrary, it is stinking to high heaven, the odor of corruption, Dostoevsky calls it. Zosima had many opponents, some of them jealous fellow monks scandalized by his lack of asceticism and jealous of his popularity among the people. The decay of the body seems a vindication of this judgment. The whole painful episode tests Alyosha's faith sorely, and in a fit of sorrow and resentment, he flees the monastery, unable to bear the apparent triumph of the ungodly. We need not recount, nor do we have the time to recount, Alyosha's interesting adventures during the day that follows. Briefly, a friend, arranges a meeting between Alyosha and his brother Dmitri's mistress, Grushenka, in hopes of seeing Alyosha succumb to temptation. It does not quite work out that way. Suffice to say that Alyosha, in his interaction with Grushenka, begins to realize that Christian holiness consists not in visible miracles, but in the miracle of love. And it's just the, the relationship between those characters, right? The, 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 young, the young novice, the woman of loose morals, um, each discovering through the other the gospel of love and forgiveness. It's just, it's just amazing what Dostoevsky does there. Um, 
Alyosha begins to realize that living this life of love does not require life in a monastery for its exercise. He thus returns to the monastery where the funeral vigil is still in progress. He arrives at the exact moment when one of the monks is reading scripture over the casket. And what is he reading? He's reading the miracle at Cana. And I know I'm going to go over a, li a little over time here, but I, I can't not read from the Brothers K here. Um, so Alyosha goes in, he kneels down, he's sleepy, he's been, it's been a very busy day, and he's falling asleep, and the, the monk is reading, and the candles are lit, and so he's sort of nodding off, and he wakes up, and he realizes, oh, they're reading the miracle at Cana. Ah, yes, I've been missing it, and I didn't want to miss it. I love that passage. It's Cana of Galilee, the first miracle. Ah, that miracle, ah, that lovely miracle. Not grief, but men's joy Christ visited when he worked his first miracle. He helped men's joy. He who loves men loves their joy. The dead man used to repeat it all the time. It was one of his main thoughts. One cannot live without joy, says Mitya, that's his brother Dimitri. All that is true and beautiful is always full of all forgiveness. That too, he used to say. So then the, the Father Paisi, who's reading the, the passage, he gets to the place where the, the ruler of the feast tastes the water that had become wine, and he knew not whence it came from, and he says, you've saved the best wine for last. So Alyosha says, what's this, what's this? Why are the walls of the room opening out? Ah, yes, this is the marriage, the wedding feast. Yes, of course. Here are the guests, here are the newlyweds, and the festive crowd, and where's the wise ruler of the feast? But who is this? Who? Again, the room is opening out. Who is getting up from the big table? What? Is he here too? Why, he's in the coffin, but here too. He's gotten up. He's seen me. He's coming over. Lord. Yes, to him, to him he came, the little wizened old man with fine wrinkles on his face, joyful and quietly laughing. Now there was no coffin anymore, and he was wearing the same clothes as the day before, when he sat with them and visitors gathered around him. His face was all uncovered and his eyes were radiant. Can it be that he too is at the banquet, that he too has been called to the marriage in Cana of Galilee? I too, my dear, I too have been called, called and chosen, a quiet voice spoke over him. Why are you hiding here out of sight? Come and join us. His voice, the elder Zosima's voice, how could it be anyone else since he was calling? The elder raised Alyosha a little with his hand, and Alyosha got up from his knees. We are rejoicing, the little wizened man continued. We are drinking new wine, the wine of a new and great joy. See how many guests there are. Here are the bridegroom and the bride. Here is the wise ruler of the feast tasting the new wine. Why are you marveling at me? What are our deeds? And you, quiet one, you, my meek boy, today you too were able to give a little onion to a woman who hungered, an allusion to a folk tale that plays a major part in the novel. Begin, my dear, begin, my meek one, to do your, your work. And do you see our son, S-U-N, do you see him? I'm afraid, I don't dare to look, whispered Alyosha. Do not be afraid of him. Awful is his greatness before us. Terrible is his loftiness. Yet he is boundlessly merciful. He became like us out of love. And he is rejoicing with us, transforming water into wine, that the joy of the guests may not end. 
He is waiting for new guests. He is ceaselessly calling new guests now and unto ages of ages. See, they are bringing the new wine. The vessels are being brought in. Which gives me a chill just even that. It's incredible. Okay. So to conclude, I just have a few paragraphs more. Hearing the story of Cana read aloud, and of course Dostoevsky draws out the suspense, rehearsing the narrative bit by bit so as to maximize its impact on the reader, Alyosha suddenly realizes that the decomposition of the elder's body is irrelevant, and that the mockery of the world is nothing when set against the truth of God, the God who wills his creatures good. The Johannine economy of signs stretching from the miracle at Cana of Galilee to the raising of Lazarus the climactic sign, is a complex display of divine glory amid human shame, love amid hatred, life amid death. The hour indeed has not yet come, yet as Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, the hour is coming and now is. As Jesus makes his way back and forth among Galilee, Samaria, and Jerusalem, he describes an itinerary of divine presence that invites his followers to a life of joy. Cana is the first of the signs, not least because it shows us joy, simple, glad, unrestrained joy, as being among the chief marks of the life of the church. And by the way, you could connect this theme of joy to the eudaimonistic motif that, that Philip was talking about in, in Christian ethics earlier. A postscript to the exegesis and the end of the paper. In his commentary, Aquinas, deferring as he often does to Augustine, notices the fact that the six water jars held two or three metretes each. I noted earlier that that's occluded by the ESV translation. Why this odd detail? On Augustine's reading, the numbers two and three denote the Trinity. Three, for the obvious reason, and two because often in Scripture only the Father and the Son are named, while the spirit of love is implied. This interpretation no doubt strikes us as fanciful. Yet, it is an attractive reading, insofar as the fourth gospel as a whole displays the activity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one Lord of both the church and the world. The wedding at Cana shows humanity blessed by the presence of Christ, who is the gift of the Father, whose generosity makes us drunk with the good wine of the Spirit. Perhaps Origen was not far off the mark when he said that the church is full of Trinity. Thank you.